This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome to this mini episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Julian K. Jarbo, the author of the Lambda award-winning short story collection, Everyone on the Moon is Essential Personnel. And now here's more of our conversation. Did you want to read the first letter or should I? Or should we talk about other things first? Ooh, I love that. Normally, normally I ask people that question, but since you asked it, I will read it. The subject of the first letter is rushing to cut ties. Most of my relatives on my father's side are not pleasant people. This ranges from stilted standoffishness to selfishness and conflict-seeking. I don't have anything in common with the few cousins who have been kind to me. Many of these relatives make transphobic jokes. I am trans, as is my longtime girlfriend. I assumed that I'd naturally interact less with my relatives as I grew older, but I realize now that I'm going to have to be intentional about it instead of waiting for them to drift away. I feel a little guilty because it's not like these people have ever done anything terrible to me, and I never felt comfortable enough to ask them to knock it off with the jokes. At the same time, I struggle to understand why I should put so much energy into connecting with this tiring crowd just because we share DNA. Allegedly. That was me. I added that. Is it wrong to want to seriously limit my relationship with a whole branch of my family simply because I don't like them? Well... I've got an easy answer that's short, (laughs) which is it's not wrong. Uh, And you can totally just do it. That's the easy answer that's short. That is not the full story, in my opinion. Um, What do you think, Danny? Yeah, I I don't know why I was so interested uh, in that moment and saying, like, allegedly. um, I, I think just because I guess this person is sort of asking, like, why do I feel so much obligation around these people? And, you know, part of it is, like, you know, my guess is that you have not all taken like those home kit DNA tests. Like you believe that you share DNA, but it's it's also <laughs> sort of like the structure is such that like everyone's mom says we're related. So we just don't question that. Like you don't know that. Yeah, I guess Maybe you, don't. you don't share DNA at all. I don't I don't think that it especially matters one way or the other. I just think it can be helpful to sort of like not think of it as as a given that you share genetic lines so much as just like, well, we've all agreed that because of, you know. Uh, legal marriages and and legal uh, kinship ties. We we should share DNA. Yeah, I think the thing that I'm missing from this letter, and so I'm going to make a lot of assumptions without it um, that I just sort of have to acknowledge, is what is the norm of closeness in this particular family? It, I didn't actually get a very clear picture about whether this was a family culture of we see each other many times a year, you know, it's cousins and extended family are always a big part of everything versus, you know, maybe you see them once in a while and it's awkward, right? And so one of the reasons I bring that up is because I I think this might be a much more difficult problem for somebody who comes from a large extended family where a large extended family is kind of the center of people's social universe. And I, uh, I guess the experience that I bring to it is that um, one half of my family is or was like that and another half of my family super duper isn't. And so uh, I'm coming at this from the perspective of kind of like 
how much leverage do you really have? There are some families in which simply not talking to your cousins is like unremarkable and not mean and not a big deal. And people just have different lives and you don't think about it. And there are others in which it's like, you don't talk to your cousins, what happened? Mm -hmm. Right. And people will actually demand an explanation from you. For me, it's like, if it's the kind of family where people are going to demand an explanation from you, if you simply like don't answer calls or go to events, um, I might suggest moving very far away. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's a good excuse. But if it's the kind of family where like, this is just a habit, you can actually just kind of not put in effort and find out if anybody is going to put in effort when you don't, that's a really good opportunity to be like, hey, by the way, I know I've never mentioned this before. I don't love the way people talk about me and my, and my, (laughs) is it girlfriend? Yeah. Uh, I don't really like the way people talk about me and my girlfriend in this family. Um, It seems like you want to have a relationship with me. Can we work on that? And if at that point they do the predictable, like, I don't know what you're talking about, nothing bad has ever happened thing, then you get your answer. And now you kind of have like a really good reason to be like, okay, well, that doesn't work for me. Bye. Um, But you may be surprised to learn that they might not put in any effort at all. And if you stop talking to your uh, distant cousins that you already don't have a great friendship with, they simply might never put in the effort and then you just won't be close and problem solved. I do um, very much I'm being appreciate very simplistic. this. <laughs> I, I do like the like, I feel like it's a sort of classic, uh, you're hoping that your partner will dump you so you don't have to break up with them kind of approach that right. some people take. It, like that with relatives. I like the idea of just like, I guess I was sort of hoping they would just forget we were related as we got older. And I, I I appreciate that strategy. I can certainly see myself trying a strategy like that at various points in my life. And um, yeah, I, I also wondered, you know, the letter writer doesn't say anything about their father, for example, just that their father's side of the family sucks generally. So right. I don't know if letter writer, does your father share that opinion of his side of the family? Does he think that they're great? Are you and your father especially close? Do you depend on him for money? Would he or your other relatives that you do want to maintain some kind of a relationship with give you a hard time if you stop talking to these cousins? So that may be part of the answer to your question of, I I can't really understand why I've put so much energy into connecting with these tiring people. Um, I I think one thing that will help you, letter writer, is to try to figure out, historically, I have done that. Why? What have been some of the benefits that I've gotten from that? And that might be something like, it cuts down on annoying questions from the relatives that I do like. And I can understand why you'd want to save yourself that kind of hassle, um, a sense of obligation, a sense of wanting to minimize my like ways in which I might be seen as difficult because I already feel like I'm sort of getting away with something by being trans and having a trans partner. And so I want to make sure that I like smooth everything else over to try to make up for it. And I'm not saying that you would have been thinking that consciously, but that that can sometimes happen is this sense of better not ask for anything else. There is this, there is this burden of... Um, effort that is put on, you know, I mean this very, uh, as an umbrella term, but the gay cousin, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there is this kind of like, you're, you expect yourself to do the work of smoothing over these relationships. And I don't see anything in this letter about anyone else like being worried about this. So the, when I say this is an, has an easy answer, the, the easy part of the answer is that a relationship is not a sole responsibility of you, letter writer. And if you're like, I'm just going to not answer these people's calls and not be friends with them, that's not like a bad thing that you did. That's not like a snubbing that you that you like committed. And 
it can also be uncomfortable to accept that some people in your family who, you know, maybe you want to know the major goings on. Maybe you don't want to be so out of the loop that you don't find out when there's like a funeral or a wedding or something like that. And so you make tactical decisions about who to stay in touch with, how much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a, a, a part of it where if somebody's like, why did you stop talking to your cousins or whatever, you can say like, well, they haven't called me either. That sounds like, you know, kind of like a, a snippy comeback, but but it it really it really is worth considering why why this is supposedly all on you. And if everybody is trying to stay close to you and they're just doing a really bad job of it, then the harder answer is you need to get whatever support you need to be able to have a preliminary conversation about transphobic jokes. Uh, and I would never say that that's easy. I don't think sitting your relatives down and saying, you guys have a fundamentally fucked up uh, sense of humor that um, dehumanizes me and my loved ones. uh, That's not going to be easy. So if you want to go there and you uh, are feeling guilty because you feel like, well, I haven't even tried, you're going to need to make sure that you have lots and lots of support when you go into that. Don't just throw that at them at the next Thanksgiving. Do you know what I mean? Make sure that you have some space to retreat to when they might not like that feedback. Yeah, I um, I, I suppose I'd also like to complicate the letter writer's uh, assertion that none of these people have ever done anything terrible to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that like probably what they meant was like no one ever like, you know, tried to hit me with a car. You know, no one ever like stole my identity and used my social security number. Um, I... I do get that, but it's not good that they make transphobic jokes. Mm-mm. It's it's pretty bad, actually. Um, I, I would go so far as to call that pretty cruel and pretty pointed. Like, it, they know you're trans. They make those jokes on purpose to let you know that they think it's a bad idea and you should feel bad about it. That's mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah, actually, that's just terrible. They have done something terrible to you. It doesn't have to be the worst thing in the world for us to say, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of it also depends on on context. Personally, I would have a really different conversation with a family member who, let's say I, as a 32-year-old trans person, had, you know, was like reflecting on a very painful memory from when, like, when we were all 12, and this cousin said some really, you know, kind of messed up thing about gender, and it really stuck with me, and it hurt me. But now it's been like 20 years and they might actually have changed as a person. And I kind of just want to address that. That's like a different conversation than every time I go to a family gathering, you know, Uncle Joe is freaking creepy. You know, like that's different. And I think that you don't have to rank the pain or like dismiss things that were a long time ago. But I would also address the things that are said by people who were adults in charge of your care at the time, especially when you were younger, especially when you are in a, you know, even as an adult, you can be like sort of stuck at the kid's table kind of role uh, versus like things that happened between other kids. Um, what were the stakes? Were, you know, other people struggling with kind of like growing up or having, a you know, the crappy a uh, sexist uncle was their dad. And so they were sort of repeating things. And But, you know, now maybe they could be approached... I, I almost feel like I'm going too easy on your family by suggesting these things, but you can actually uh, hold different standards for different family members. You don't have to have this like yardstick by which, you know, everyone either was terrible to you or they weren't. It's like, 
Yeah. You can just just go there. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely fine simply not to be close to your relatives. You know, if letter writer, you say, you know, I never felt comfortable enough to ask them to knock it off in part because you have some sort of sense of, I kind of wish that I had, if only for the clarity that might have come with such a conversation. You know, you can, if you want, say something now. Even if that idea strikes you as an uncomfortable one, you can maybe ask, like, what are ways that I could try to minimize some of that discomfort? Um, Or is it, you know, would that be worse than the discomfort that I have felt over the last, I don't know, you know, nine Mother's Days or whatever? But you, you, you may want to say something. And if you would like to say something, you are entitled to do so. You don't have to just only time it to when someone has made a joke recently. You could say something like, you know, you've made a lot of transphobic jokes over the years. I don't like it. It doesn't have to be comfortable, but you also don't have to like fly to their house and hold their hand and sit in their living room while you say it. You could just... Right, right. So um, something that is worth reflecting on, letter writer, is um, whether or not you can accept being perceived unfairly and to what degree. So um, if you need to not talk to any cousins in order to sort of justify not talking to certain cousins, right? Because sometimes it's a package deal with families. They're like that. You can't avoid their brother or your aunt or whatever like that. Some people in your family are going to think that you've snubbed them. Some people might think that you drifted or that you did something um, and others won't notice at all and others will not put two and two together. Um, but there is, a, there is a possibility that if you distance yourself from your family in general, people that you basically like um, may take it personally um, and you may not have the ability to correct that perception because you're trying to maintain your distance. Um, that's uncomfortable in its own way. And I think that's also got to be part of this process is being like, you know, the cousin that I kind of respect who's sort of cool, you know, I, I guess I just don't have that relationship. And maybe she thinks that I don't like her. Um, can you, can you deal with that? Uh, cause people are going to think untrue things about you all the time. And, um, I think that's one of the most painful things about big family shenanigans is, uh, that they become like, a terrible like snowball of opinions really fast. And for people who are sensitive to rejection and for people who are being actively rejected in some way for real already, the sense of like, and then they're going to think I'm a bad person too. It's like, yeah, they might. Some people will think you're a bad person. I don't think you're a bad person. I think there are no rules and you can be close with whoever you want. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that's true too. I think I don't like these people as a great reason not to be close to someone. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's more baggage that comes with it if that person is a cousin, but it, it's still, I think, a, a pretty decent uh, rule and um, you do not necessarily have to pretend to have this like long-standing, close, emotionally vulnerable relationship where you frequently discuss conflict if you've never had that kind of relationship where if you're feeling like, God, but I never said I didn't like the transphobic jokes. Maybe that's on me. And it's like, I don't know that it is. Um, One thing that you might be able to do to gird yourself against fear of other cousins you don't hate so much being uh, sort of troubling about this is like no one else, it sounds like, has said anything when those relatives have made transphobic jokes. No one else has stopped and said, you know, don't. That's bad. And so, you know, if they put more work into hounding you for not returning some phone calls than they did when somebody made a fucking transphobic joke in front of you, um, you know, I think they have bad priorities and they should be uh, exerting their energy uh, in in other ways. 
And if they do that, that's like that's like page one of the textbook and it's boring. Just let them work it out on their own. You don't have to like entertain that at all. You don't, you don't have to listen to that. So before we head into uh, the very exciting lightning round format, I wanted to share a comment from a, a listener that I just got that is both sweet and also completely baffling. And um, so I'm hoping perhaps you can help me to shed some light on it. Um, it was just a, a brief note uh, on the announcement of the changing format of this podcast. And it was, I think this format is a better fit for you. I frequently objected to your suggestions about how people could fit themselves into cishet norms, even though I have lived my 72 years that way. I'm more interested in hearing your ideas of how to be oneself. Best wishes. What? <laughs> I mean, I'm so curious about, I've lived my 72 years fitting myself into some norms. Oh. I'm real curious to know about if you still feel that way or if you're interested in changing that, um, how that's going. But I really didn't think that I was often advising people to um, not come out or stay in a straight marriage or <laughs> detransition or be more normal. Like, I would not have thought, like, boy, if somebody was, like, frustrated with my suggestions, it would be along the lines of, like, too often I say, hey, you, just fit in. I don't think I've ever known you to give the just conform advice. Not Almost not ever, except maybe as, like, a joke. But, like... I kind of wish I could find out who this person was so I could have them on the show because I would just I would love to hear like wh where did I do that because I would like to stop is there like a word missing from their feedback that's the only thing I can I don't think so but listen if you're listening if you're 72 years old and if you wrote this send me another email and if you'd like to come on the show we could even redo some old answers that you felt were insufficiently radical because mm -hmm. um, I genuinely would like to help people get free of some of these uh, painful and restrictive norms. But also, you know, thank you for the good wishes. And uh, this was a very kindly phrased uh, series of suggestions. Just Yeah. I love baffling. Is fan mail the word? Maybe not. But I love baffling mail. It's so much better than like active threats, <laughs> which I also get sometimes. <laughs> Always. So I prefer the like sure. real weird ones. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, I will be thinking about this one for the next 10 years. No big deal. No big deal. Um, but in the meantime, we are going to answer two questions very quickly. Okay. Um, this is the lightning round. We have two questions this time and I will read them both. I won't put you through having to uh, uh, read them and then come up with a very quick answer. Okay. But I will read it. I will put 60 seconds on the clock. You will tell me when you are ready and I'm going to say, go for it. And then I'll do the same myself. Great. Beautiful. Subject of this first one is hurt and furious. A newer friend of mine recently went on a rant about how she's, quote, sick of Jews because of how entitled they are and their why me attitude. She went on to criticize their victim mentality from the Holocaust. I am Jewish. And although I don't believe her to be anti-Semitic, I do believe she was trying to hurt me because I didn't follow through on some tentative plans we had made. Admittedly, I haven't been as available to her since having my first baby, which I've apologized for. But then she brought up how she thinks I'm too obsessed with my baby. She also said she has problems expressing herself and therefore can't be held accountable and brought up other unrelated issues, like how she's been sexually assaulted in the past. She has since made it clear that she has no intention of apologizing. 
but is instead demanding I apologize for something that happened months earlier when I admittedly wasn't as sensitive as I could have been about a recent breakup she had been through. However, despite all this, she still wants to mend the friendship, and it feels like she's keeping some clothes I lent her hostage. I don't care about the clothes. I just want an apology, or I'm done with the friendship. But I'm terrible with confrontation, and I keep being nice to her, even though I'm hurt and furious. What should I do? Well, you, I'm sorry to say that your self-image as being bad at confrontation is probably accurate. Your friend is anti-Semitic, hands down. I don't care what she thinks she believes. She's, she's doing the anti-Semitism right now. There it is. It happened to you. Some anti-Semitism was, was hurled at you in a crystal clear form and it hit your body and it hurt you like a softball through a window. And I don't know why you feel the need to weigh this against other bad things that have happened to her as if that's a check she can cash every time she's a crappy friend. She's a crappy friend. She's not nice. Don't be friends with her. Say bye. Also, babies need lots of attention. It's okay to be obsessed with your baby. They kind of need that. That's like the point. Okay, I'm done. Beautiful. You even had an extra 10 seconds, so I will jump in now. Um, Yeah, your friend is incredibly anti-Semitic. I'm so sorry. She's a monster. Um, I'm glad you got to read your piece earlier because that idea of like any bad thing that might have happened to me turns into like a morality token that I can hand in and say like, oh, I'm allowed to be anti-Semitic today because in the past somebody else harmed me. Um, That's just not how anything works. That's horrible. That's a horrible way to think about life. Um, She's incredibly anti-Semitic. The idea that I think she was just trying to hurt me because I like didn't follow through with tentative plans is, if anything, worse. Like that's just disgusting that she's like, well, I'm mostly just annoyed that we didn't end up getting coffee. So I'm going to say horrible anti-Semitic things to you. You apologize to her for having a baby, which is just monstrous. Uh, she's, she's made it clear she has no interest in apologizing. That's the one thing you want from her. She is not a good friend to you. She will not apologize. Um, I, I encourage you to cultivate better relationships to confrontation in the future, but you sure don't have to start here because this lady is just a monster. That's it. That's my time. Your soul is free. You don't have to be friends with her. She's a, It's her mess, not yours. Be free. I hate that lady. Yeah. Um, Bye. Great. That was easy and simple. That was There's so nothing, easy. Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry. I will take us into the second lightning round question, which is spoiled for choice. I need to quit my job. It's crushing me, but I feel stuck and frozen by indecision. My mom mostly mapped out the life choices that got me here, and I've spent the last three years disentangling myself from that codependent, unhealthy relationship with the help of a therapist. We talk a lot about how I'm free now to choose what I do for myself, but I barely remember what I wanted to do before I did this, and going back to school feels too expensive to even consider. I'm only in my mid-20s, but I've been in this job or college for this job or pre-professional high school training for this job for over half my life. I know you can't tell me what I want to do, but do you have any advice for how to figure that out for myself? Is it totally crazy just to quit this job without knowing what I'm doing next? Well, great work on figuring out that you can want things on your own. A cool twist that I would add to what the wonderful work you've been doing with what sounds like a great therapist is that doesn't mean you have to want things all the time with great intensities right away. You almost certainly will have a career change in your future. Uh, That's probably going to happen. 
Um, I knew lots of people in their 40s who I went to college with the first time around who had completely changed careers. Think about it this way. You're going to be 40 anyway. It's going to be fine. Better that you be doing a job that you want then than you know, one that you don't. Um, if there's any degree to which you can hold on to your job, my advice is do not quit it without a next step planned. Um, you mentioned fear of debt, which is reasonable. So consider instead of tuition or bust, financial planning is a great way to practice decision making. And how about making your first act of independence building an emergency fund, a fuck you fund, if you will, which will give you the ability to A, quit your job if it gets so bad that you just got to hit the bricks and B, not immediately fall into financial dependence on your mom, who it sounds like will probably try to leverage precarity on your part for her own ambitions. Uh, I wish Sue Zorman was here, but financial literacy and realism will make a lot of these emotional things so much easier. What about you? I think the only thing that I would like to add to that, which is a fabulous answer, um, is, you know, you, you don't have to remember what you wanted to do before you did this, because it sounds like whatever you wanted to do before this, you were 14. Um, and I realize it can be really kind of tempting to think of like, if I could only go back far enough in time, I could find the true thing that I wanted to do and like honor my full self by like going back for that. You might not have known about jobs that you now know about, uh, the last time that you seriously considered a different career path. So don't waste too much time trying to figure out like, what did I truly want? Like in the remote past, um, it is okay. If you don't know now, it is okay to try new things. It is okay to try your next job. Fine. You don't love that one either. And keep looking. Um, as long as you make sure that you have at least some sense of how you'll be able to cover your expenses month to month. Um, you know, you can choose to be a little bit more risky and quit sooner rather than later if that's what you want, but just you know, know your risks, know your debts, know your abilities, uh, and look for something else. Um, that's it. Try a new job. See if you hate it. You can always quit that one if you have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's it. That's, that's it. my time. Amazing. We can't say anything else. We're done. Ugh, it's so tempting. It is. It is. I always want to say a little bit more, um, but I just can't give in to that impulse. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. Listener.